0: as you listen to this week's message from Pastor Adam Camp, Take your Bibles open to Exodus chapter 5. Exodus chapter 5, we are continuing our sermon series through the book of Exodus. We're excited about what the Lord has shown us so far, what he's going to show us uh, for the weeks and months to come. And and while you're finding Exodus chapter 5, I want to tell you, some of you may not know, but today is the day we celebrate the anniversary of Rosemont. 54 years old today. And we're thankful for the people that have gone ahead of us, uh, the people that built the foundation here, faithful members for many, many years, uh, for decades. Some of those people are still with us. Many have gone on to be with the Lord, but I'm just so thankful for the opportunity to be here for what the Lord has done. And we're thankful for the people that have come before us. Uh, We praise the name of the Lord for all he's done through those people. But We know it's the Lord that's worked in this place. And we pray he would continue to do that, continue to bless us. As I I think about the people that have gone before me and have built the foundation, many of you probably know this, but Mr. Ken Bruce went to be with the Lord just a couple of days ago. And uh, he and his wife, Miss Phyllis, have been faithful members here for a number of years, and their family now, of course. And so uh, if they're watching from home, we love you guys. We're praying for you. His funeral is this afternoon, but remember them in your prayer. uh, And let's be thankful for men like Mr. Ken and for others, and and may those of us that are a little bit younger carry on that tradition. May people look back on our lives one day and be thankful for our faithfulness, and may God bless us in, in all that we do. Now, we are continuing our study through the book of Exodus, and I've loved the discussions that I've had with people about this book. I love preaching through books because I feel like it gives us a much better picture of the whole counsel of God. It's easy to kind of pick and choose, but when you work through entire books Uh, you kind of go through bigger pictures and bigger themes and you see kind of what the Lord's up to. And I've had a lot of interesting discussions, a lot of great questions, people that are reading ahead already and asking some questions. But so far, the question I've gotten the most relates to last week's sermon and specifically why I didn't answer a very specific question. I'm not gonna spend a lot of time on this, but I did wanna go back and review very quickly and kind of answer this question that a lot of people have asked me. Let me just read the passage from last week and then spend a couple of minutes talking about it before we get into Exodus chapter 5. At the end of Exodus 4, in verse 24, the Bible says that a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him, that's Moses, and sought to put him to death. And I've been asked the question several times, uh, really before I got to that point point. in last week, why did the Lord want to kill Moses? I learned a very valuable lesson in seminary. I learned a lot of good things in seminary. But one of the valuable lessons I learned was from one of my teaching professors And he said, if you ever come to a point in Scripture where you don't understand or don't know, just skip it. Because better to be silent on it than to preach the wrong thing. And because I really have no idea why the Lord sought to kill Moses, I skipped it last week. (laughs) But I had enough questions I felt like I need to follow up and kind of answer it. I'm going to go ahead and be transparent with you from the beginning and tell you I don't really know. It's an interesting passage of Scripture. It seems to just kind of be sandwiched in there between the narrative We're not quite certain, but here's what some scholars say. And again, I'm just telling you, nobody knows for certain. The Lord's silent on it. And I think there's sometimes the Lord is silent for a reason. But I think it probably had to do with the fact that Moses had not yet circumcised his son. Right? That's a big part of the Jewish tradition. That's what brought people into the kind of the fold of the Jewish tradition and the Jewish faith. Moses had resisted that. Uh, When he finally did that, the Lord blessed him and he moved on. Now circumcision is a big deal for the people of Israel. We're going to get, as we get farther into the story of the Exodus and kind of work through this book, we'll see that again and talk more about that. But we see that Moses at that point had failed to do it. And when he finally fulfilled that obligation, the Lord allowed him to go. Now, here's the big picture, and I always want you to get this. The big picture we're building here is we're looking ahead to Jesus. Right, I've said this before, but all the Old Testament points ahead to Jesus. All of the New Testament looks back on what he accomplished. And so when you start thinking about this idea, this idea of circumcision and the blood that the Bible speaks of, and we'll see this more through the book of Exodus, the idea that a sacrifice of blood must be made for the atonement of sins. And this will become a fuller picture when we get into the wilderness and the Lord commands the people of Israel to sacrifice bulls and goats, and rams, and different types of animals. We'll see this more fully. But the idea is, in order for sins to be forgiven, blood must be shed. Now, that's the Old Testament understanding. That looks ahead, we need to understand, to Jesus who is the ultimate lamb, who will one day shed his blood for the forgiveness of our sins. So even as we think about this, even as we think about this ritual the Lord called them to, even as we think about the Old Testament sacrifices and the blood, we're still looking ahead to Jesus. Right. The the thing I love about reading through the Old Testament is we know that Jesus will one day appear, but the Lord is kind of filling in kind of one little uh, paint stroke at a time, one little picture at a time of exactly who Jesus is going to be. So we're building that picture as we walk through the Old Testament. Now, Exodus chapter 5, let's jump right into what's going on. The Lord has been at the burning bush. He's been talking to the Lord. The Lord has given him very clear instructions about what he wants him to do, where he wants him to go. Now Exodus chapter 5, verse 1. The Bible says afterward, this is after the burning bush, after his journey back to Egypt. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Now remember, Pharaoh's the most powerful ruler in the world. These are two guys that have literally just walked, one of them has just walked out of the wilderness and he makes this demand of the Pharaoh. This is what the Lord says, let my people go so that they may hold a festival to me in the wilderness. And Pharaoh said, and this is a question you ought to underline in your Bible, who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. I will not let Israel go. Then they said, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Now let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God, or he may strike us with plagues or with the sword. Remember, they're not quite sure yet what's going to happen. They know something's coming. They know the Lord is powerful. They know the Lord is going to compel the Pharaoh to let his people go. But Moses and Aaron say, listen, let us go or the Lord may strike us. With plagues or with the sword, verse 4. But the king of Egypt said, Moses and Aaron, why are you taking the people away from their labor? Get back to your work. Then Pharaoh said, Look, the people of the land are now numerous and you are stopping them from working. Here's the first thing I want you to get. Remember, we're working through this account, we're trying to understand more about what the Lord's doing. We're seeing his majesty and his glory, but we're also seeing the roadblocks on the way to the people of Israel fulfilling their ultimate calling by going into the promised land. So here's the first thing we see, number one, the unbelief of Pharaoh. The unbelief of Pharaoh is the first real stumbling block here, the first real problem that the people of Israel are going to encounter. So Moses has returned now from the wilderness, he brings Aaron in with him. He says to the Pharaoh in verse one, "Let my people go." Now, by the way, this is the first of several times Moses is going to say this. He doesn't just do it once; he does it several times. He does it in verse, uh, chapter seven, chapter eight, chapter nine, chapter ten. In fact, I think there are seven times in those few chapters that Moses says to the Pharaoh, "Let my people go," and every time we know that Pharaoh is going to uh, say no. Pharaoh's going to respond negatively. And this first time, really, the response of Pharaoh lets us into his heart, but it poses an important question we need to answer. Exodus chapter 5, verse 2 Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord? Now, that's a question you either have already answered or at some point in your life will be required to answer. Who is the Lord? He goes on to say, who is the Lord that I should obey him? Who is the Lord that I should let Israel go? I don't know the Lord. I will not let Israel go. This is a question really from Pharaoh of unbelief, right? He's saying, if you kind of read between the lines, I don't know who this guy is. I don't know who the Lord is. I don't believe you're telling me the truth. I, by the way, Moses and Aaron, am the king, and I'm going to do what I want to do. Now, we look at Pharaoh with disdain a little bit. How could he question the true and living God? How could he question what Moses and Aaron, how could he say to them, I'm in charge, I don't know who your God is, I'm not going to do what he tells me to do? And I have that mindset until I fast forward now over 3,000 years and I look at my own life because we're awfully good at saying to the Lord, I know you're the Lord, but I'm the king of my own life. And I appreciate what you're doing, Lord, but I'm going to make the decisions for myself. I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm going to decide where I'm going to go. I'm going to decide what I'm going to say. I'm going to decide who I'm going to. Lord, if I need you for something, I'm, I'm happy to call on you. I know where to find you. If I need something, I'm happy to kind of call on you to make some changes on this earth. But by and large, in my life, I'm king. Now, we would never say this out loud as believers. You're probably not going to go to your Sunday school class and go, I'm king of my life, I don't care what the Lord says. We're not going to say that, but oftentimes we live like that, don't we? Oftentimes we have the same heart that Pharaoh had. It's a heart of unbelief. and I'm saying that the Lord is God, I'm saying that he's king, but when the rubber meets the road, I'm going to make my own decisions. And if they're different than what the Lord calls me to do, well, so be it. I'll just have to ask for forgiveness. But See, here's, here's what the enemy does in our life. This is what the enemy is good at. The enemy is good at sowing seeds of doubt and unbelief within our lives. The devil's very good at tricking us into thinking God's not real, or God's not telling us the truth, or God's not strong enough to act, or God doesn't really care about what we're doing, or God's too big to get into your life, or you've already messed it up too bad, the Lord can't work. The devil is very, very good at tricking us and lying to us and sowing within our hearts seeds of unbelief. In fact, it's what he's done from the beginning. I love the Old Testament because it's such a beautiful story and it flows so well looking ahead to Jesus. But a lot of the problems, well not a lot, all of the problems begin in Genesis chapter 3. Right, God's created everything. Sin enters the world. And the Bible gives us an account of what the enemy does in the heart of Eve in Genesis chapter 3. You say, Adam, do you believe Adam and Eve really existed and there really was a serpent? hundred percent I believe it. I absolutely believe it actually happened exactly the way the Word of God says it happened. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, I want you to listen to the tactics of the enemy. Now the serpent, that's the devil, was more crafty, yeah, that's a good way of saying it, than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, listen to the question Satan asks Eve, did God actually say, he's sowing seeds of doubt, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. Right, from the beginning, the enemy has questioned the Lord. From the beginning, the enemy has set seeds of doubt in the hearts of his believers. From the enemy, Satan has lied to us one writer said it like this the problem of the garden of eden is still the human problem today unbelief has god really said that you shall not eat from any tree in the garden we have here in pharaoh a particularly powerful example of a stubborn refusal to listen to god Now let me just go ahead and just kind of clue you in if you don't understand this biblically, but practically in your life as well, there is great danger in not knowing the Lord. Now I would argue that creation is clear. I would argue that God has revealed himself, first of all, and his glory in nature, in creation, in the order of creation. In fact, we see that scripturally. Isaiah 44, 24 says, I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself. Psalm 19, verses 1 and 2, the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork day to day, pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. I would say to you there are all sorts of ways we can see the Lord at work in nature. The beauty of a sunset or a solar eclipse or a beach or a mountain. We see the beauty of the Lord throughout nature. We would call that general revelation. God has shown us generally. He's revealed himself to us generally in the world. The problem with general revelation is it's not enough. It's good to know that God exists, but we need more. And so what we would say is that God has given us general revelation that he exists, but he's also given us what we would call special revelation. That's his word. And in his word contains all we need to know about Jesus, about salvation, about how we ought to live life. 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17 says, All scriptures breathed out by God profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now, Pharaoh asked the question, who is the Lord? And I said, that's an important question that you either have already answered or will be required to answer some point in the future. But here's the problem. We live in a world that increasingly distances itself from God. We live in a world that doesn't care who the Lord is. We live in a world that doesn't think God is real, doesn't think he matters, and we say, well, what does that have to do with me? How do I fit into this equation? Well, there's two things you ought to do. First thing, as the world runs farther and farther away from the Lord, you need to run closer and closer to him. As followers of Jesus, we should live a life honoring to Jesus. We should live a life characterized by our faith, by our trust, by our obedience. And so as the world runs farther and farther away from Christ, we need to be running with everything we have toward him. But the second thing we ought to do is we ought to recognize that the world is lost, right? They don't understand the things that we understand, And so when the world asks the question, who is the Lord, as believers, we've got to be willing and able and prepared to give them an answer. Not good enough for us just to have general revelation about God exists and we're all going to be fine and all paths lead to heaven. That's not what the scripture teaches. Instead, when people ask, who is the Lord, we should be prepared because we're running to Christ to give an account to give an answer, to share with them in Scripture. This is who the Lord is. This is how he's worked. This is what he's doing in my life. Now let's continue. Look at verse 6. That same day, right? So the unbelief of Pharaoh. That same day, Pharaoh gave this order to the slave drivers and overseers in charge of the people. You are no longer... To supply the people with straw for making bricks. Let them go and gather their own straw. But require them to make the same number of bricks as before. Don't Don't reduce the quota. They are lazy. That's why they're crying out. Let us go and sacrifice to our God. Make the work harder for the people so they keep working and pay no attention to lies. Verse 10. Then the slave drivers and the overseers went out and said to the people, This is what Pharaoh says. I will not give you any more straw. Go get your own straw wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced at all. So the people scattered all over Egypt to gather stubble to use for straw. The slave drivers kept pressing them, saying, Complete the work required of you for each day, just as when you had straw." And Pharaoh's slave drivers beat the Israelite overseers they had appointed, demanding, why haven't you met your quota of bricks yesterday or today as before? Verse 15. Then the Israelite overseers went and appealed to Pharaoh. Why have you treated your servants this way? Your servants are given no straw, yet we are told, make bricks. Your servants are being beaten. But the fault is with your own people. Pharaoh said, lazy. That's what you are, lazy. That's why you keep saying, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Now get to work. You will not be given any straw, yet you must produce your full quota of bricks. Verse 19, the Israelite overseers realized that they were in trouble when they were told you are not to reduce the number of bricks required of you for each day. When they left Pharaoh, they found Moses and Aaron waiting to meet them. And they said, may the Lord look on you and judge you. You have made us obnoxious to Pharaoh and his officials and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. And let's pause for a minute, right? We've seen the unbelief of the Pharaoh, right? His failure to listen, his failure to obey, his failure to believe the truth of who the Lord is. That failure of the Pharaoh is gonna lead to truth number two, the burden of the people. Because of his disobedience, Because of his failure, because of his unfaithfulness, the burden of the people is going to increase, right? Pharaoh is unmoved. Moses and Aaron come and say, listen, this is what the Lord says. Pharaoh says, dude, I don't don't know who the Lord is. I'm not going to listen to him. How dare you even ask me to let the people go? Because you've done this, I'm going to increase the work. So I'm going to have these people continue to make the same number of bricks, but I'm not going to give them any straw to do it. Now, this is hard for us to understand because we don't live in a world where we make our own bricks, do we? I don't think any of us have made our own bricks to build our house. I may be wrong, but I doubt that's the case. And so we hear about straw and bricks. We don't quite understand. So let me kind of explain to you how it happens. Right? When I was in Africa a few years ago, I watched them. I got the opportunity of watching them make bricks. And those of you that have been may have seen this. They basically take mud and a little bit of sand and water and some straw or hay. They mix it together, mash it up, put it in like one of these frames, a wooden frame, and they kind of lift the frame out. And then they let it sit there in the sun. And it bakes for a period of time, a few days or a few weeks. And then what they do over there is they stack these bricks up and they make this big, almost like a kiln where they're stacking all these bricks in kind of this big semicircle, and at the bottom they leave this opening. And so there's this big tall pile of bricks, and at the bottom there's an opening of two or three feet tall, and it goes all the way through the entire pile. And so what they do is under those bricks they build these fires, and they set these fires, and they light them, and then these fires burn for a period of sometimes weeks. And that heat, heats up the bottom of those bricks, which is conducted all the way through the top bricks, and the entire pile gets hot. They bake in that heat. They bake in that sun. And they've done studies. And those bricks, they say, can last 30, 40, 50 years. Pretty neat process, really. And I remember one day I was with them, and they need some help loading these bricks, and they brought me along with them. So I hopped in the truck with them, and we're driving out of the place, and the guy's explaining what's going to happen. And I see these big piles of bricks, and there's fire under it, and I'm thinking, This is going to be hot. What are you going to do? The guy's like, listen, don't worry. No problem. I've got some gloves for you. I'm like, man, thank goodness. I should have known. I should have known. He hands me the gloves, and I'm not joking. The fingers have all been worn completely out. There's no fingers. You know those shooting gloves you have or the workout gloves? Right? Look just like those. Those. You want to talk about hot potato? You ever done the game hot potato? Remember how you do that? This was real. I mean, these bricks are hot, so you get them and you toss them off. You put them in a pile, and they leave them to cool, and then they go build buildings with them. Now, the straw is important because it binds the brick together. Like, you can make bricks without straw, but they're not nearly as strong. They break a lot more easily. And so when the Pharaoh says to these people, listen, you're going to continue to make the same bricks." But now, instead of us delivering the straw to you, you're going to go get the straw yourself, right? So it's going to take you a lot more time, a lot more effort. The Bible says in verse 19 of chapter 5, the Israelites realized they were in trouble when they were told, you're not to reduce the number of bricks required of you today, right? They knew there was a problem. They knew how hard they'd been working. They knew how hard their people had been working. They knew they could just barely make the quota when the Egyptians were providing the straw. Now that the Egyptians are no longer to provide straw, they know they're in trouble. Like, what are we gonna do? How are we gonna respond? I want you to notice verse 15. Pull up verse 15, Exodus chapter five, verse 15. We're gonna read 15, then we're gonna look at 20 and 21. I want you to notice If you can pull out from this, the problem, I'm going to give it to you in just a second. Exodus 5, 15, right? They realize they're in trouble. They realize the quota is the same, but there's no longer straw available to them. Their workload greatly increased. Exodus 5, 15. Then the Israelite overseers went and appealed to Pharaoh, why have you treated your servants this way? Now skip down to verse 20. When they left Pharaoh they found Moses and Aaron waiting to meet them and they said may the lord look on you and judge you you have made us obnoxious to pharaoh and his officials and have put a sword in their hand to kill us and let me remind you of something right these are the chosen people of the lord this is the lord that promised their father abraham and isaac and jacob this is the lord that has been faithful through the book of exodus or through the book of genesis into the book of Exodus. This is the same God that has shown himself now to Moses through the burning bush. This is the same God who has re-entered this picture that is now beginning to work with the Israelites. He's beginning to work to free them from slavery. This is the same God that has promised them great things if they'll just trust him. The problem is when bad things happen, When trouble arises, the people of Israel complain to everybody but the Lord. Interesting, isn't it? Verse 15, they go first to who? Pharaoh. After he doesn't listen, verse 20, they go to Moses. He doesn't listen, they go to Aaron. They, They appeal to all the wrong people when they should have turned their faces to the Lord and sought him out first. Now, again, it's very easy for us to judge these people. How in the world could they do that? How in the world could they not go to the Lord? How in the world could they complain to Pharaoh and then Moses or Aaron, knowing full well next week when a coworker does something you don't like, you're going to be on Facebook the next morning, when I cannot believe somebody at work would do something that mean to me. <laughs> it's very easy for us to look and judge, but we need to judge our own hearts, don't we? Now, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but I wonder if anybody this last week or this last couple weeks have had anything happen to them that was unfair. I just wonder. Sure, sure you have, right? We all have. Anything happened to somebody they didn't like, something that upset them, something with school or work or family member, whatever the case may be, right? The question for you then, and question for me too, when that happened, what did we do? Did we go complain to three or four people? Did we complain to our spouse? Did we complain to a coworker? Did we get on social media? Or did we instead go to the Lord? Let's summarize this in a simple question. How do we respond in times of trouble? How do we respond in times of trouble? Let me read to you what Romans chapter five, verses three and four say. Not only that, but here's what the Bible says, we rejoice in our sufferings. Let me read that again. We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You know, if you're new this morning or don't know a whole lot about our church, or maybe you're watching online or an overflow or not familiar with Rosemont, Rosemont is a very missions-minded church. And pre-COVID, we sent teams all over the world. Post-COVID, we're going to do the same thing, right? As soon as they open back up, as soon as we can go, we're working even now to try to get some teams in place the beginning of next year. But We have a lot of partners in different parts of the world. And because we have a lot of partners in different parts of the world, we hear from them on a pretty regular basis. We get to read their newsletters. If you're interested, by the way, kind of right out this door, there's a world map, and right beyond that to the right, there's a whole section of newsletters from our missionaries. If you're interested, go grab one. You can read them, you can sign up for them, you can get them online. But we received a couple of weeks ago a newsletter, an update from one of our partners in South Asia. I'm just going to read it to you, right? Bearing in mind this idea of being joyful in suffering, here's what our partner in South Asia said. I've changed the names because this goes out online. We are heartbroken to say that after nearly five weeks of fighting for his life, Sanjay, the young man, listen, who was acid attacked for his faith, has died of his injuries. All efforts were made to get him the medical care, blood donations, surgeries that were needed. But with 60% of his body burned, he was not able to survive. We are very sad and also relieved that Sanjay is no longer suffering, but at home and whole with his heavenly Father. Listen now, listen. Sanjay's family has returned to their home. Boldly, they continue to gather in their home for church. His mother recently said, They may do this to my son. They may burn my house or kill me. But I will never leave Jesus. Faith in struggle. Who do we go to when the chips are down? Who do we go to when things aren't going the way we think they ought to go? Who do we go to when we're desperately in need of a miracle, when we're desperately in need for something to change? Do we allow our faith to persevere? Do we trust the Lord or do we trust the world? So we've seen the Pharaoh's unbelief has led now to this extra burden placed on the people. Let's finish this thing up. Look at verse 22. So Moses returned to the Lord. This is going to be a reoccurring theme we're going to see throughout the book of Exodus. Moses talking to the Lord. He returned to the Lord and said, Why, Lord, why have you brought trouble on this people? Is this why you sent me? Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has brought trouble on this people, and you have not rescued your people at all. Let's go to the first verse of chapter 6 now. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out. With a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. The unbelief of Pharaoh... Led to a greater burden on the people, which leads truth number three to a reminder of the promise of God. Right, we see now the promise of God, the Lord has been faithful from the beginning. The promise He made to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 is now being fulfilled in Exodus. Three, four, five, six, and following to the people of Israel. And here's the truth we need to gain from this when the Lord makes a promise, he always fulfills it. He's not like you or I, and we forget what we said, we forget what we're supposed to do, we promise one thing and do another. That's not who the Lord is. And so we should take great comfort in understanding when the Lord makes a promise, he is faithful to do it. You say, that's great, but what what sort of a promise has the Lord made to me? I mean, what has the Lord actually promised me? I'm going to give you just a few. I don't have time this morning. There are literally hundreds in Scripture. I'm going to give you just a few of the promises of the Lord, hoping that one of these, maybe more, will speak to the situation you're in right now. First of all, God promised to be with the people of Israel. Right, Deuteronomy 4, 29 says, From there you will seek the Lord your God, and you will find him. If you search after him with all your heart and with all your soul, right? There's this promise that as we trust the Lord, as he's our God, he will walk with us. There's great hope in that. As we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, if we seek the Lord, he will be with us. He promises protection. Psalm 121, verses 7 and 8. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and coming in from this time forth and forevermore. The Lord promises that his love will never fail. 1 Chronicles 16, 34, Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. The Bible promises that the Lord will work in us. Philippians 1, 6, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work and you will bring it to completion to the day of Christ Jesus. The Lord promises us abundant life. John chapter 10, verse 10 the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I've come that they may have life and have it abundantly. On and on this list goes the promises of the Lord that speak to our hearts, that give us peace and comfort. And here's the beautiful thing about the promises of the Lord. All of the promises of the Lord are ultimately fulfilled in Christ. Right? And Jesus offers us, because of what he accomplished on the cross, probably the greatest promise of all. Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. John three sixteen For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Of all the promises in Scripture, probably the greatest is the promise of salvation. And so I just want to challenge you right now, whether you're here or at home or overflow, if you've never prayed to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you've never received this ultimate promise, let this be the day. Now, some of you have been here for a long time. Some of you have been members of this church for 10, 20, 30, 40 years, right? You've been believers for even longer than that. I would encourage you, if you're a follower of Christ, you should pray right now for the people that are not. But if you say, listen, Adam, I've never really thought about this. I've never really heard this. I've heard the name of Jesus. I don't know a whole lot about it. I know I've never prayed to receive Christ or ask for the forgiveness of sins. I would encourage you today, seek Christ. Turn from the sin and the mistakes of your life and turn to Jesus. Because one of the greatest promises he gives us is that if you seek him, you will find him. If you trust him, if you repent of your sins, you will be saved. Right, God's got a great plan for us. God wants to do great things in our lives. But for you, it begins with salvation. And let me pray for us this morning. Father, we thank you for the clear picture you've given us in Scripture. We thank you for the way in which you have used this story to impact our lives, Father, to challenge us. We thank you for what you've done and what you're going to continue to do. Remind us, Lord, of your goodness. Remind us of your promises. Remind us of exactly what you can do, what you will do if we'll just trust you. And if there's somebody here this morning that's never prayed to receive Christ... Let them repent of their sins and trust in Jesus. And we'll give you the praise and the honor and the glory for everything that you do. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.